Hello, I'm Elena DelVal, and this is the Hispanic Marketing and Public Relations Podcast. My guest today is Tom McMakin, who is co-author of How Clients Buy, A Practical Guide to Business Development for Consulting and Professional Services. Tom is Chief Executive Officer and Partner of Profitable Ideas Exchange, or PI. Before joining PI, he was a co-founder and managing director with Orchard Holdings Group, a private equity firm based in Cincinnati, Ohio, as well as serving as an operating affiliate at McGowan Delu and TSG Consumer, two consumer-focused buyout groups in San Francisco. Prior to working in private equity, he was the chief operating officer of Great Harvest Bread Company, a multi-unit operator of bread stores based in Dillon, Montana. Tom, welcome. Thank you so much, Elena. It's, it's, it's good to be here. Let's just get down to basics for a second. It sounds pretty straightforward when we say consulting and professional services. But what are we referring to specifically? Who is selling professional and consulting services? Is that lawyers? Is that doctors and dentists, accountants? How about bankers? What about morticians? What falls under this category? Yeah, so I, I, it's a great question that you're asking because historically, professional services has uh, included the medical profession, the law profession, the accounting profession. And uh, they're professional services because you need a license in order to practice. Um, I, I think, you know, as the world has evolved, there are all sorts of people that sell consulting services now, and they don't need to be licensed. And so maybe professional services either is too small a word or, or, or the right phrase is expert services because what binds somebody that works at IBM or Accenture that sells uh, IT consulting services or somebody that works at McKinsey or Bain or BCG that sells strategy services with an attorney and an accountant is that they're all expert at something. Um, and, uh, and they sell their expertise. They don't sell, um, something that you can touch and feel. You know, you mentioned a mortician. That's truly a service business, but I think I'm focused on the folks that sell ideas. Does that mean that accountants and doctors and morticians fall outside of that? Yeah, I think so. Not so much accountants because while accountants can do your taxes, they oftentimes can be consultants about uh, how you might want to take your company public or or managing uh, the security of your finances in the cloud. And so they, uh, they're they a kind of firm that has a foot in both camps. Uh, they sell expertise and they sell arms and legs, if you will. Accenture is the same way, right? They'll They'll help you install an instance of SAP in your company, but at the same time, they offer advice and expertise. Um, And the question is, uh, you know, I think the question of this book is, uh, is expertise sold differently than uh, something that you can touch or feel? One of the examples that you give in the book is when you're purchasing a product, say, for example, like a phone, a smartphone, where you are buying something tangible. And in the case of services that we're discussing here, you're buying something intangible. Is that right? Yeah, that's exactly right. So when you think about uh, buying a phone, let's say an iPhone or any kind of phone, you might think in terms of how the processor speed, the size of the phone, the weight, the screen size, the number of pixels, uh, the resolution of the camera, uh, what kind of operating platform it is, the price. You look at the price. Um, in fact, the, the test of this is it, if you were an Excel sort of person, you could build a spreadsheet and you could say, here are five different phones and here are a bunch of different attributes. And you could build out that kind of matrix of features and attributes. And then you could say, you know, I don't mind a heavy phone or a big phone, and I don't mind an expensive phone because I really want performance. And then you'd know you want to get a, a big iPhone. But 
maybe what you're saying is you're buying a phone for you know your your aging mother and you're like you know what I don't want it heavy I want it to be a flip phone I don't want it to do much and she has no money so I want it to be cheap um, so you can optimize on different uh, different attributes when it comes to expert services that's not the case um, if you were if your aging mother wanted uh, an attorney to help her write a will um, you wouldn't get online and find all the attorneys in Miami and uh, and rank them according to features and attributes and price. The chances are you would uh, call up somebody that you know that's an attorney or somebody that's written a will and say, do you know anybody uh, that's good? Uh, I need somebody that's sort of got a light touch for my grandmother and is not too expensive but does a nice job. And uh, maybe you went to college with somebody who's not an attorney. You call them up. And uh, she says, you know, I don't do that kind of work, but I've got a friend that does, and I'll make a referral. So expert services are sold on relationships, uh, referral, and reputation, not features and attributes. And in that way, they're very different. And so the question of the day becomes, um, how do you push that rope? How do you uh, how do you try and juice your relationship, your referrals, and your reputation? Um, you don't put a big billboard on the side of the highway that says Tom McMakin, cheapest attorney in, in all of Miami, um, because when people buy professional services and expert services, they're oftentimes uh, not as sensitive to price as they might be when they're buying a phone. Uh, they want the best or they want the best value, but selling, saying deeply discounted law services is not a way to... Uh, success in the kind of world of high-end expert services. Most of the time when we hear about sales, sales strategies, there's a million books and sales experts out there, they're talking about products or a combination of product and service. Because certainly when you buy a smartphone, you're not just buying a product, you're buying all of the intangibles that are behind the handheld device itself. You're buying all of the software and the apps and the connectivity that the company offers, right? Correct. And yet, most of the time, hardly anybody talks about this aspect of the expert services that we're discussing today. Is this market segment so small in comparison? Why is this something that is so often left out? Yeah, I mean, it's just a good question. I mean, I think it's really an accident of history that um, when sales began to be studied at the turn of the last century in business schools, uh, the majority of, of what we sold in the United States were goods, uh, manufactured goods. But the fastest growing segment of uh, of our of our economy is uh, is the services sector. Um, we've become knowledge workers, and you know the segment's quite large. It's 1.7 trillion dollars worldwide. All the accountants, all the attorneys, all the IBMs and Accentures and IT integrators and cybersecurity experts and HR experts and strategy experts. It's a huge industry. Many many. Uh, uh, professionals now count themselves as kind of expert service or knowledge workers. And I just think we've seen a failure of uh, thought around sales kind of uh, catch up with that reality. I noticed you didn't mention marketing or public relations or bankers, for example, in that is it just because it's time-consuming to mention all the categories? Is it a relative to the total amount within the market? What can you tell us about that? Yeah, no, I mean, I definitely think that uh, uh, public relations and marketing clearly falls in this scope, right? If you are a public relations expert, and let's say your sub-segment is crisis management, um, on some level, most people don't know your name, right? Most people don't know what you do until something terrible happens in their company. And then they're like, who do I call? And they might call a lawyer. They might call an accountant. They might call a peer in another company. Um, they might do an online search to see who handled the United Airlines disaster 
most recently and say, oh, it's Ogilvy, I need to call them up. Um, but they're looking for kind of reputation and or relationships in that moment, that morning when the news hits and they need help. And then they call someone up and they say, I think you work with my friend that used to work at uh, uh, this uh, bank and you helped, you know, Wells Fargo with this particular crisis. I'm wondering if you have time to give me a hand. It's happening right now. Um, and so I think public relations and marketing advice uh, is is sold very similarly. It's not sold on features and attributes. You don't see somebody saying, we can help migrate your company into kind of a, a digital marketing future. Um, you don't see them put a billboard up that says, uh, you know, here are, uh, we've got 67 people devoted to website design and we bill out at the cheapest per dollar per hour rate. Um, you don't see them talking about features and attributes. What you see them doing is uh, going to conferences of chief marketing officers of companies they'd like to serve in industry sectors and getting to know them and telling stories about some of the work they've done for other firms. Because, as you say, uh, marketing is sold very similarly to expert services in, in other sectors. What can you tell us about the companies that buy these expert services. Who are they? Where are they in the country? How many are they? Well, so everybody buys expert services, whether it's, uh, you know, whether it's website design or an attorney to um, incorporate or an IT integrator to help you install an instance of Salesforce.com in your business. Um, small, medium, large, super big companies um, hire expert services. I think there's a trend in the world toward uh, uh, focusing on that part of the the value chain where you can add the most value, which is, a I guess, $50 words for just saying doing what you know how to do well and outsourcing the rest. Um, so the days in which when you stood up a company, you needed your own head of marketing and head of finance and uh, head of HR are gone. Now you focus on what you do, um, which might be, you know, as, as simple as uh, managing a chain of, uh, of kind of dog grooming facilities and hiring professionals on an as-needed basis to help you develop the business, whether it comes to marketing or IT or, or uh, legal services. And so there really is a trend, I think, toward uh, the disaggregation of the corporation, if you will. And that happens certainly at the largest levels as well. You'll have a, a general counsel in a large firm um, who does very little law, if you will, themselves, but rather outsources their intellectual property law or their litigation or their uh, HR law to firms that are expert and that are concentrated in that for two reasons. One is when you go to a wrongful termination litigator, they do that all day long. They know the law better than you. You're the generalist um, as the general counsel of a, of a company. Um, and also it's cheaper in the long run because when your wrongful termination suit is finished, you can just shut the spigot off on this uh, wrongful termination firm. You don't need to sort of keep your litigator busy in-house. And so that's been a long-term trend in business over the last 50 years is the kind of decentralization and uh, kind of uh, a devolution, if you will, of, uh, of, of services outside of the corporation. It's a little bit also of a, a savings because you don't have to have those specialists in-house um, this Correct. particular litigator that you're talking about. Um, and sometimes it might help if you have a firm that is specialized and dedicated, say a litigation boutique firm, when you're negotiating, the other party might stand up straighter and pay more attention. Yeah. No, I mean, would you doubt that uh, if I were going to hire a, a firm that was going to be focused on uh, – you know, marketing into a certain community, maybe even a, a community of color, I, I would want to find an expert 
uh, voice that understood that community and uh, understood this, the, the, the unique language of that community and had strong experience both with success and failure in that community. I can't afford to uh, create that experience inside of my company, knowing that it takes a long time to do that and specialize expertise. Is there a profile of this in-house person who is making the decision to buy expert services? I know you said a minute ago that everybody buys services at some point, but to some degree, if you're looking at selling your services, to an in-house person, the decision maker in the company, whichever specific category of service we're talking about, is there a profile that applies across the board in terms of what this person might be like? Yeah, no, I think that's a really great question. So um, the temptation is to think that if I could just get to know the CEO of a company, I'd be in like Flynn. But you'd be surprised. Increasingly, business is a team sport. And the CEO, even if they have an idea about, let's just say, a a public relations firm that they might use, is going to gently suggest it uh, to their chief marketing officer or their head of investor relations um, because they want to empower that person to make their own decisions. And so figuring out exactly who's the right person to talk with when selling one's services is a little bit of an art. Um, I, I, think, I think the CEO in, increasingly makes very few decisions like that. Um, and uh, I think it's in smaller companies, it would be what you'd call the C-suite. So chief financial officer or chief HR officer or chief marketing officer or chief operations officer. Um, and in big companies, uh, I think there are two things going on. One is big companies generally are, are, are a collection of four or five or ten divisions, and so very little is bought at the corporate level, but it's bought at the divisional level. And then below that, quote, C-suite, there's another level of sort of functional leads. So we find our clients increasingly pitching uh, executives that are like CMO minus one in charge of marketing analytics. So a marketing analytics firm would go in, they could pitch the CEO, they could pitch the chief marketing officer, but really the person that's the buyer is the head of marketing analytics reporting into the CMO. How do you get to that place? It sounds very straightforward, but I'm sure our listeners are saying, Yes, but how do I get to the point where I'm in front of this person when I'm in contact with this person? How do you get from I'm very knowledgeable, I know what I'm doing, to having someone listen to you, having someone give you an opportunity to pitch that business? Yeah, so I have a couple different answers to that. I think, you know, in how clients buy, we write that um, that it's important for Uh, potential buyers to both uh, believe that you can do the work, what we call respect, and trust that you have their best interests at heart. Um, Those are different things. Um, I could could think you're the best person in the whole world, um, and I'd trust you with my kids, but I might not think you're competent, or I might think you're competent, but you're going to be sneaky behind my back. Both those things have to be present. And so the trick is not just to get in front of the right people, but to figure out a way to build credibility uh, with a potential buyer and at the same time build trust as they hand over a piece of the business to you and pray to God that that you're going to do a good job for them and make them look good and and make them, like, avoid getting fired. I, I was talking to the head of management consulting for... Um, uh, for uh, North America for Accenture, a guy named Walt Schill, and uh, he said, I think we underestimate the risk that buyers take on when they hire people. So let's just let's just take our crisis management example. So something terrible happens in the morning. I make a couple quick calls to find a kind of PR person that's expert at, at crisis 
management. And suddenly, not having met this person at all, them not knowing much about my company at all, they are the spokesperson for the company in front of the world. And that's like a make or break thing for the company. I know if I handle it poorly, this event, as the CEO of this company, I'll get fired by my board. If this vendor, this PR person that I hired, bumbles it or somehow drops the ball. Likewise, it could make my career. Um, so there's a lot of risk associated with uh, taking on a new trusted uh, advisor or uh, a consultant. So the question you asked is, how do you do it? How do you get in front of these people? And uh, there are a couple sort of tried and true ways to do it. One is um, thought leadership. So that means writing an article or, well, look, I'm trying to on some level build our business and we're an expert services company and uh, we help services firms drive their business development. And uh, so I wrote a book, a best practices book about what other people do to build their professional services business. And now I'm talking to you. Alana, and and, uh, and spreading the word. So that's a kind of tried and true way, is to talk about the thing that you're expert about and uh, kind of get that out into the bloodstream and people begin to see you as an expert and it builds your reputation. The thing that we do for professional services firms is we pull together likely buyers uh, into peer groups and position our clients at the center of those peer groups as trusted advisors. So let me give you an example. A big four accounting firm hired us to pull together groups of chief tax officers in Fortune 250 companies because this accounting firm sells tax services and they wanted to get in front of chief tax officers of big companies. And so instead of calling up those chief tax officers and saying, hey, this big four firm wants to talk to you about how great they are, who wants to Take that call. Instead, we, we called up with a compelling uh, offering, which is this big accounting firm is standing up groups of chief tax officers from a variety of big companies, and uh, they want to give the executives a chance to talk with each other and ask each other questions, because who trusts anyone more than a peer? Um, and they uh, are the host of this group, and they're able to sort of demonstrate their expertise uh, and over time scope more work. That, you know, that's one of the signal differences between selling an intangible service versus a tangible good, which is with a tangible good, you can talk about it. it, it it's this fast. It has this many pixels. It's got this weight. But with expert services, you can't really describe your I'm the smartest attorney in town. That doesn't sound, that sort of sounds self-serving. You have to demonstrate your expertise. You have to find forums in which you can show people that you're smart about what you do. There's that saying that nobody got fired for hiring IBM. <laughs> yes. And this is true. This is true in practice. People who are making those decisions whether to hire you, whether to hire an HR consultant or an IT consultant, whichever expert or experts they need, they're afraid to go with some unknown name or brand. Tell us about that. No, you're absolutely right. And we're, uh, we're kind of, I mean, we're, we're sheep on some levels as buyers and we're social animals. We want to, we want, we want, I'm going to, you're going to buy from me, but you want to know that I've worked for somebody that you have worked with before or trust because trust is kind of handed from person to person. I want, you want me to be well introduced. It's hard to get a foothold cold. And so we do certain things as providers of expert services. One is when we send out uh, you know, pitch decks to people that we want to work with, we oftentimes have a logo page. And we say, oh, look at all these great companies we've worked with before. And there's there's assurance as a buyer, like, well, I guess if uh, they work for IBM and Accenture and all these great companies, they, uh, they must not be terrible. Um, another thing we do is we pull the strings of relationships. So what, one of the most successful things we have done at our company, because we sell expert services, 
is to follow people when they leave a company. So this seems pretty simple, but um, we, we have a program manager at a big company, and suddenly we hear that she or he has been fired or she or he has decided to move on, and uh, and and we're like, oh, we're terribly sorry, and then we get a call from their person's boss, and they say, we've got a new person that's assigned to the project that you're working on. We want you to kind of work with them. So you might just say, oh, great, well, we we – we now have a new incumbent, a new client, and we just need to sort of develop a relationship with them. But we make sure that we reach out to somebody on, you know, LinkedIn or get their personal emails after they leave because inevitably they will go somewhere else. Um, they're in this industry that we serve and uh, they will land somewhere else. This is a 2% unemployment economy. They will get a job. And uh, they already know our good work, and they can be a way in which we can get introduced into a new company. We just had that happen. A large IT consulting firm in Texas started laying people off, and uh, bam, we had like five people land in new companies, all of which loved our work and were like eager to get us installed in a new company. We are in many ways in a shrinking market, meaning that – Many companies on the public traded companies have disappeared. They've been gobbled up by other companies or have gone out of business. The market has been shifting toward fewer publicly traded companies. And in addition to that, after the recession, many companies are gone, many smaller, medium-sized companies. Some would say the same thing is happening in the public services and expert consulting side of business. What do you think? You have a, an idea about that in the book. Yeah, you know, I mean, I think it's for sure that the biggest companies are consolidating, and they're, they're oftentimes our buyers. Um, and, uh, and so we're the private companies that are the outsourced help to those large Companies. I will say in professional services uh, itself that uh, I don't see the number of professional services firms shrinking um, it, because there's very little barrier to exit in a, in a professional services company. So let's just – we'll pick on Accenture. Let's say I'm the supply chain head, the head of supply chain consulting at Accenture. Um, I, I'm just as likely one day to go, you know, I'm sick of all the uh, – all the kind of issues of working for a very large company, I'm just going to go hang my own shingle out and call it McMakin Supply Chain Consulting. I've got a lot of relationships. I'm well-known in the industry. I, I speak at the industry conference every year. I, my, you know, my phone never stops ringing. People value my advice. Um, why not just uh, set up my own shop? And so, and then, and then it's title. Those shops grow. Those independent shops grow. And then they get bought up by, uh, the Accentures and the IBMs and the Cognizance and the Tata Consultings. This is all IT or on the marketing side by the publicists and the Omnicoms uh, and the WPPs of the world. And so there's this constant kind of flow out of the corporation and then uh, acquisitions back into the corporation. Um, and so you can play. There's, a, there's definitely room to play in that world. A lot of jobs in the United States have gone offshore. This has become a mass loss, a source of mass loss of jobs, including professional services jobs, from medical to IT to accounting and tax companies doing American tax returns offshore. What can you tell us about offshoring of these expert services. Yeah, no, I mean, for sure it's a trend, and I, I think a number of firms, particularly in the last decade, made a lot of money in what they call business process outsourcing, which is, you know, you need somebody to sort of review the tax returns, and so we hire, we build a shop in India, and uh, uh, we connect the the world of need here with the, the, the world that's able to deliver on that at a at a kind of cost-effective price in India, and there's a good transaction we made. I will tell you, and that, that, that trend continues to exist, I, you know, I'm, I'm 58 years old. I just had my birthday, Elena, on, on Labor Day. And uh, in my lifetime, I remember it used to be 
that I could buy, you buy a transistor radio, a little handheld radio, and it was made in Japan because in post-World War II, that's where the cheapest labor was. Uh, no one buys that sort of cheaply manufactured items from Japan. Then it went to, it seemed like it went to Taiwan. Everything was made in Taiwan. Then everything was made in Korea. Then everything's made in China. Um, and now it's uh, maybe Malaysia or the Philippines. And so you see a sort of a dynamic, and, and professional services firms are, are, are not immune to this, which is um, we build a connection with India, and, uh, and that helps them establish a kind of homegrown uh, industry, um, and wages rise, and then suddenly they've worked themselves out of a job. They're no longer the low-cost provider. Um, but they have their own consulting firms like a Cognizant or a Tata that are, that are able to compete directly with maybe a U.S.-based firm. And so uh, it, I just want to sort of point to the phenomenon that the low-cost provider uh, moves around the globe. For that reason, I'm actually bullish on Africa in the long run. Economies like Kenya and, uh, and Ghana and Nigeria, Sierra Leone um, are all – very well developed and positioned to sort of be the next place where you buy a transistor radio from. Um, it's just a, it's an interesting phenomenon. I think one of the things we're seeing is a reshoring of jobs now um, to lower cost parts of our country. So you're interviewing me and I'm in Bozeman, Montana, um, and we do work for large coastal firms and we do it at a, from a wage scale that is somewhat cheaper than what people have to get paid in New York City. And that arbitrage between what we pay people and what New York City pays people is our profit. And so you might think of us as an example of reshoring or domestic outsourcing. Um, as the world finds the kind of most efficient uh, labor cost structure to deliver items. So I, I think I'm with you on your general thesis, which is uh, – that, that large companies are seeking to find uh, efficient sources of labor, but I don't think it's necessarily and forever offshore or one particular offshore. It seems like it's moving around. How important is it for this executive or C-suite executives that we've been talking about who are the decision makers in this process, how important is it for them to like you as opposed to respect, trust, believe in your credibility, believe that you can do a good job. How do you work around these likability, credibility, respect issues and strike a balance? Oh, that's a great question. I, I think a lot of people think that, um, that, that likability is the key to new revenues, and uh, I don't think that's true. I think it doesn't hurt. People like to work with people that they like with, like to, that they like. But, um, I mean, think about a surgeon, right? So my daughter had uh, scoliosis and she had some spines put in her, uh, sorry, certain rods put in her spine. And uh, as we were talking to the doctor, I didn't really like him that much. Uh, he seemed kind of arrogant um, and full of himself. But you know what? He had a great reputation, and we knew two people whose kids had had surgery with him before, and they raved about him. I thought he was both credible, and I trusted him. And, you know, when the we stepped out to the waiting room, it didn't matter that much that I didn't want to go have a beer with him on Friday night. I think we think that way about a lot of providers. Maybe in a litigator, I don't need somebody that I, I like. Maybe I need a shark. Uh, in my particular corner, um, it's uh, you know we th I think about real estate agents. They're service providers in this world, and you know when you're selling a house, maybe maybe you want someone that's pretty aggressive, more aggressive than you would uh, uh, probably include in your next dinner party. So I guess I think likability is helpful, but it is a, an insufficient uh, a criteria on which to hire a service provider. It's overrated in my view. Do you think that the decision makers 
have the same maturity of decision-making that you just shared with us, meaning that you don't necessarily have to like the person you hire. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I think uh, you mean here all the time, which is this uh, this gal, she's, uh, she's, a, she's tough to work with, but she's effective. She gets the job done, and uh, she's done it for a whole raft of companies, and at the end of the day, she's going to do right by you. Um, she's going to protect your best interests when your back is turned. Uh, she's honest as the day is long. Um, people hire people like that every day of the week. Again, I'm not saying that, you know, at the margin, particularly if you're hiring a consultant with whom you're going to work every single day, uh, maybe in the next office, you might, you might not lean toward, I'd like to work with somebody who's likable. But think about the thought of experiment of, of hiring somebody that you knew in high school that you just loved. They were the nicest people in the whole world. Not too smart uh, and kind of kind of uh, kind of slippery at the edges. Uh, likely to sort of uh, take $20 out of the till uh, on the weekend so they can have a good time. All right, so you like the person. They're rascals. Um, but would you really entrust your business to them? How do you deal with the issue of diversity in the in that situation? Because oftentimes people are inclined to work with people who are like themselves, who look like they look, who like the same kinds of things that they like, go to the same places, speak the same language. And as we become increasingly diverse across the country, and we have the most diverse generation coming up behind us, which the demographers are telling us millennials are, we are increasingly facing this issue of diversity. I'm sure some of our listeners are sitting there saying, yeah, but, you know, are they going to hire someone of a diverse background? Are they going to hire someone who's Hispanic or Asian or African-American and so on and so forth, a woman? How do you get around that obstacle and still, I mean, sometimes you can't even get to the table. Yeah, no, I, I mean, I think what you're saying is real and needs to be talked about. Um, when I say that professional services are largely sold on relationships, reput reputation, and referral, that systematically denies access to markets uh, to people that have not historically been part of those markets, right? So if Harvard Business School historically has done a poor job of including people of color in its entrance class, then 20 years later, when one Harvard Business School graduate thinks about who should I hire to help me with my strategy, looks through the McKinsey Rolodex of partners and recognizes one of uh, her or his old, old classmates from Harvard Business School, it's more likely than not that that person's going to look like them and not, not a person of color. That's like a real thing. Um, and so the, the, the question is, um, are there things as a society and as providers that we can do to overcome that? I mean, I think the first thing is that, um, you know, I think all professional services are a, a kind of game of what I would call adjacency, which is to say that you, you work for a big company, you're part of their big PR apparatus, you decide to spin out, um, the, the company knows you do good work. You talk to your boss before you spin out to start your own company, and you say to the boss, is it possible that I could take over all of the event planning for the, the expo on an outsourced basis? And the boss says, you're the best. Absolutely. And that's your first client, the person that you used to work with. So then the question becomes, is there an adjacency where your reputation will transfer? And so you say to your, your boss, I'm wondering if you would be willing to introduce me to somebody across the organization that also throws an expo and uh, and vouch for the fact uh, that I do a great job. And, you know, regardless of my ethnicity, regardless of my background, regardless of my language. Um, and so you build the business there. And then somebody in that division 
loves your work and leaves and goes to another corporation and you call them up and say, I'd love to, I'd love to help you run your expo at this new corporation. That's the way in which reputations are built. But again, to suggest that there's not, um, there, there's not a kind of social network, call it the old boy network, that historically been, has been male and white um, and English speaking, is to sort of stick your head in the sand. Um, but at the same time, to suggest that it's impossible for uh, uh, consulting firms and professional services firms where the founders are uh, of, uh, 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 of some sort of different ethnicity or or language or cultural background than historically the majority of Americans have had, um, to think that they can't be successful and grow one small step at a time, one relationship at a time, one good gig performed at a time, one uh, asked reference at a time, is to not see that a number of uh, minority-held professional services phone firms have grown and prospered. Do you Does have any statistics? Sorry, I ahead. don't have any statistics particularly on that. You know, I know that Dun and Bradstreet uh, uh, does uh, tracks the professional services firms uh, very closely, and it'd be possible to sort of take a look at that. How do we deal with the halo effect? This idea that someone is competent because you like them or because you know them in another context. Maybe you know them socially. Maybe you go to temple or church together and you think that they're an okay person and you think that that transfers into them being honest and or professional and someone that you might work with when, in fact, you don't know anything about their professional capability. Yeah, so I think that's actually really difficult. Um, You... So I think you've identified the, the, the issues quite clearly, which is you uh, your kid plays soccer, you stand on the soccer field, you get to know this gal, she's the chief marketing officer of a firm in town, it's big, and you think, God, I'd love to work for them, and you just chat about all sorts of things over the course of not one year but two years, and you build trust. She starts dropping her kids off at your house, you're dropping your kids off at her house, you trust each other. Um, what's really difficult in that situation, and I've seen it a hundred times before, is to sort of pivot to the professional relationship. Um, and the question is sort of how do you do that? How do you convert, if you will, this personal relationship or your, you know, your, your brother-in-law's buddy from college is a person you'd like to talk to? How do you convert it? Um, and I think one of the best ways to do it is – if at all possible, don't do it yourself. This is where a colleague can really come in in handy. So you can talk to your friend, the chief marketing officer on the soccer field, and say, "Hey, Sally, I just I want to ask you a quick uh, favor, and please tell me no if it's not appropriate. But our firm uh, does public relations for large firms, and, and I'm trying to figure out who in your firm." is the right person to talk to on the kind of investor relations side of things. And uh, I would like to introduce our head of our PR practice to them. So there it's removed twice, right? So I'm introducing a colleague to a colleague of hers, and that oftentimes works. And then what you have to do when that the two colleagues get together, your colleague has to really lean hard on um, – Look, I know we've been introduced to you by the chief marketing officer. I want to give you a sense of the work that we've done for a number of other firms and really emphasize the, the your desire to sort of build credibility with them by telling them stories of case studies that where you've been effective. So they don't go, okay, I was just doing a favor to this, the CMO's friend from the soccer field. Um, because almost inevitably, the CMO, when they – they introduce their colleague is going to say, like, I don't know if there's anything here, but would you just do me a favor and take the call? And, you know, do what you think is right. I don't want you to do some special favor for me here, but but uh, dig in. If there's something there, it might be fun to do some work with these guys. Um, that That's the way I try and handle it. Refer a colleague and ask your friend to refer a colleague and connect those two. 
How do you deal with situations when someone is looking for a bargain, meaning because you aren't <laughs> not with the IBM, they think that here's an opportunity to squeeze you for more. Should you put yourself in the red, should you offer your services for less than they cost you to be in the running? Is that is that a way to do business? Yeah, I mean, don't we all hate that, the discount? Um, I, uh, those are not the best clients. I mean, I think it's helpful to think about a couple things. One is the lifetime value of the, the client. So um, maybe I call you up for PR services in my crisis morning, and uh, you, you say, what are, you, what are your fees? <clears throat> and you say, for a crisis like this, it's $50,000 a week. That's my retainer. And they go, oh, my God, I can't do that. Um, how about twenty-five? And you think, you know what, that's, that's, uh, that's barely break even for our firm, the amount of resources that we're going to have to put against this project. But you think, if I could get a foot in the door and do a solid for this firm, I might be able to sort of take on the much more lucrative recurring revenue associated with investor management um, and investor relations. And so I'm going to discount in this one case in order to get my foot in the door. I'm much more like to sort of negotiate by saying, um, you know, we're, we're happy to, to cut our price, um, but here's some, you know, you, you obviously can't afford our full suite of services, so here's a reduced suite of services that we're going to offer you that's right-sized for your price. Um, I always just sort of feel sorry for people. Like, I understand you don't have a lot of resources and you can't do uh, five conferences, so you know, given what you're able to spend, we'll just uh, let's let's talk about scoping three three conferences, um, and then they have a choice to make: um, do I want five conferences or do I not? Another thing I do is uh, it's very difficult to get firms, particularly large firms, to vouch for you because they have all these corporate public relations uh, rules that say. Uh, you know, I work for P&G and I hire a contractor, but I'm never allowed to sort of um, help the contractor or let the contractor put uh, the Procter & Gamble logo on their website. And so sometimes I'll trade. I'll say, well, sure, we can do it for $25,000, but I'll tell you what, um, will you do me a favor? Will, can we agree to a couple things? One is that you'll do an endorsing quote, which I'll put on my website, and I can call you by your name and your title and your company and figure the logo. And if we do a good job for you, you will promise uh, to introduce me to three really good prospects that you know across your industry that could also benefit from our, our, uh, our expertise. And that just puts them in a position of like, you know what, I actually can't do that. I'm going to pony up more money. There are an awful lot of people that ask for discounts because they feel like that's what makes them a smart business person. And if you just go, no, that doesn't work for us at our end. Like, it's got to be a good fit for us. You don't want us unhappy. You don't want us, like, uh, starving for food. So I, I just got to tell you, we can't uh, we can't offer the service uh, on the basis in which you've suggested Nine times out of ten, they come back and go, well, just give me a bone. Cut the price by a couple thousand dollars and we've got a deal. What do you do when clients don't follow your advice? <laughs> yeah, that happens, doesn't it? That happens all the time. All the time. You know, the best thing you can do, I think, is to tell stories. So we're more powerful as expert service providers when we speak from experience and we don't use the word I, um, Alana, I think that you're making a mistake here is way less powerful than in our experience working with professionals like you over the last 20 years. We have learned that the best practice is to do X. You're suggesting that we do Y. And there's some risk associated with that because we've seen some failure associated with it. It could be made to work, maybe under the following conditions. But uh, I, I feel like I would not be serving your best interests if I didn't tell you what the collective experience of the, the industry is over the last 20 years. People mostly buckle to that kind of pressure. 
Is it important to feel the, the other side, as it were, of likability, for you to like your client, for you to feel some sort of empathy? Sometimes you're doing work that you don't want to do. Sometimes you are defending a cause that you have ethical problems with. You don't want to represent this company. They're doing something that violates your ethics, and you have to go forward. What's the importance of that? How do you deal with it? You know, I, I mean, I, I can't do work for people that I don't respect. I don't have to like them. Uh, they can be grouchy or, you know, they can have a style of communicating or uh, a kind of, uh, a, a, kind of uh, a narrative around expectations that I find annoying. All that I can deal with. Um, I'm a professional. But I can't cross that bridge to you know, working for child traffickers from an Eastern European country, uh, regardless of the pay. But everyone draws that line where they, they, they want to draw that line, and the devil's in sort of the details of how you define what is unethical and what is not. You know, one, one of the things that I think what's important is that we trust each other. And so, you know, you were talking about the difficulty, perhaps, of, of establishing trust when people come from different backgrounds. And there's, there's a kind of art to that, right? Um, I, and when I'm pitching a new company, I often look at, everyone does this, right? Looks at the executive on LinkedIn and you look for points of commonality. At the end of the day, I find the thing that, uh, establishes trust quicker than anything, and this is not available to us all, is the fact that I'm a father. And uh, I've got a daughter that lives in Washington, D.C. She's 24 and a son that lives in New York. He's 19. And uh, uh, people have kids. And it's one of the things that binds us all together. Yeah, it'd be great if we went to the same schools together or if we worked at the same company once together or we uh, we had the same avocation or we, we went to the same place on vacation. And it's possible, I think, over time to learn about this kind of uh, – points of affinity that link us together. Um, but there are some very basic, we are all sons and daughters. That's a, that's a given. Many of us are spouses. Many of us are parents. And I have found across, you know, I've lived in Eastern Europe. I've lived in Europe. I've lived in Africa and done business. And uh, this is something that binds all humanity together. The way that we communicate has changed dramatically in the last few years in particular and continues to change. I just read as a, a book that talked about it, and then I looked up a study that seems to indicate, I'm going to stop at, I don't know for sure that it's true, but what they're saying is that people who are sedentary, their personalities are changing. And increasingly, we certainly in this space of expert services are sedentary. We spend most of our working hours sitting down. How do we deal with these issues of changing personalities, if this is true, and the changes for less openness and less communication, and changing communication styles, not everyone is connecting at a personal level or attending conferences or even asking other people for referrals. There are people who just go online and look up the doctor's review and how did they score on such a website or a lawyer's website or an HR website or a glass door. How do we deal with these issues? Yeah, no, I mean, it's, it's what you're describing is a real thing. So, I mean, I think, uh, I mean, one of the things that people in professional services for a long time have done is uh, depending on the size of the prize of a potential client is they jump on a plane and they go and they break bread with the people whom they most want to serve, right? They, uh, they say, hey, I'm going to be in Philadelphia and I'd love to buy a dinner and uh, it'd be fun to get to know each other um, as we kind of contemplate a potential relationship. So, um, 
you're you're saying something which is that people are disinclined to do that increasingly. Um, and I guess I would say, but it's important. We're human beings, and uh, it's important. So, I mean, that said, I think that professional services firms um, need to be aware of the fact that increasingly people are vetting them online, and they need to manage their online uh, 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 reputation. And one of the ways you can do that is you not put on your website um, prominently we've got uh, – you know, 45 offices and 45 different countries and 10,000 executives and kind of features and attributes types of information, but instead put endorsing quotes from the people that we serve. So the chief marketing officer of 3M has a quote sort of very prominently featured on the website that says, uh, you know, our entire business, uh, you know, is indebted to uh, – Marcy for our success in our time of need, she really helped us out. Uh, you know, two or three quotes like that, and people are like, wow, this is the real deal. I don't care if they're small. Uh, I don't care if they're in an out-of-the-way location. They're the world's experts. These are the best. These are the, one of the, these are the people that the, the best, most powerful uh, people in the world turn to in, in time of need. And how do you get people to go to your website? Because some people aren't visiting websites. Yeah, like I, I mean, I don't actually want to go down this rat hole because I think that that is not the way professional services are sold. Like there is this notion out there that if we could build a website and a kind of content marketing strategy, we could attract buyers to our site and we'd get what's called inbound demand that our phone would start ringing. But in my view, that's not the way the world works, that when you're in a professional a profession, a profession, you need to reach out to people. You need to proactively make friends. They already know two or three attorneys. They already know two or three supply chain experts. Everyone else is reaching out and buzzing around their orbit. And it's a, it, it's a, it's a mistake to spend all of one's time to build an introvert's business, if you will. Um, if I just build, um, uh, uh, if I just get the color right on my website, um, more people are going to be the path to my door. I can't tell you the number of consultants that have kind of, their businesses have withered on the vine because they built a great website, they had a bunch of white papers that they wrote, um, and no one ever found them. And what they need to do is go to a conference and hand out a business card with a link perhaps to their website because people do do diligence. But I think it's a fool's errand to think that you can passively hiding behind a, a computer screen attract uh, a rich class of, of, of customers. In professional services, we want to work with human beings um, and we want to know those human beings. It's not a faceless... You know, I, I would say that depending on the price point, that's that's true and not and not true. So, if the price point of your expert services is forty nine ninety five, um, I think that a content marketing strategy blasted out to the world, where a certain number of people come to your website and buy your your book for forty nine ninety five, uh, can work. But as you get into bigger dollars, there's almost always a human relationship. Um, there will always be investment bankers that help bring billion-dollar companies together when they they buy each other. Um, it's not a transaction that I believe will ever be done in a kind of eBay for billion-dollar mergers. Tell us about Evergreen Acute and Optimizing Services. <laughs> yeah. So uh, acute, we've already talked about. So an acute uh, professional services, I don't have a relationship with you, but I will in a crisis. Um, and so a crisis PR firm or a turnaround specialist um, would be an example of an acute uh, professional service. Um, and an evergreen professional service is more like the person that does your taxes every year. So once you're an incumbent in a, in a company and you're doing taxes for them, you have some reasonable expectation that a certain 
number of your clients will renew every year. I would say most uh, professional services are uh, kind of in a uh, this third category, which is uh, an optimizing category, where where I'm coming in and I'm saying um, we've never worked together. You're not in crisis, but I think that I can save you money in your purchasing if you let me sort of dig around and uh, and and kind of lift your supply chain up into the into the cloud. So it's not urgent. That's one end of the spectrum. It's not an emergency. You don't have to hire me. It might make sense to hire me, but you don't have to hire me. And at the other end, it's not some long-standing utility where I've hired 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 you. It's uh, it's somewhere in between. I'm going to pitch a gig, which is for six months. I'm going to dig around your supply chain and save you. I believe 10% uh, of your spending. Will you let me do that? So those are all very different relationships with a buyer. Um, if you're a, an acute, if you're a seller of acute services, crisis management, for example, or turnaround specialist, you're going to want to strongly network with the people that you feel like your potential clients are going to call in crisis. Um, so even though you're a PR person, you might, you might network strongly with not chief marketing officers, but with attorneys, knowing that when someone gets in crisis, they're usually in communication with an, their attorney, and the attorney's in a position to go, you know what, I think you need some PR help here, and I've got a firm that uh, I've worked with before that would be really helpful. Anyway, there's a different kind of go-to-market strategy for each of those three different segments because they, they feel very different in the marketplace. What three suggestions would you share with our listeners that they can take back to get started or to optimize their existing strategies to position themselves. Yeah, that's great. So I think the first is to um, niche your business, uh, which is to say define your business at a level um, that that you feel like you can command. So I would much rather be uh, the leader in a category than the 500th you know, largest person in a category. So let's let's figure out an example here. So, you know, you, you can always be the best at something. I can be the best barbecue place in East Biloxi, Mississippi. Um, or if I grow, I can become the best barbecue place in all of Biloxi or all of Southern Mississippi or all of Mississippi or all of the Southeast. Um, we... But you should be best at something and something that you can credibly own. Um, so you might say, I'm the best uh, uh, public relations uh, executive building a bridge between consumer products companies and uh, historically Hispanic uh, markets. Um, and I have a very strong track record around that particular niche. I'm not going to say I'm the biggest public relations agency in the world or that I am the person that you'd want to talk to in, when, when it comes to public relations in China. But this is a niche that I can credibly own. So that's the first thing, um, because I think our, our reputations are powerful in relationship to their specificity. So when we define ourselves as, oh, yeah, I do lots of different things. I do websites and I do PR and I, I'll, uh, I'll take out the trash if you pay me enough – that no one remembers that agency, but when you when you very sharply niche yourself and say CPG companies, historically Hispanic communities, that's my niche. That's what I do when I'm launching my next uh, in-store beverage uh, skew into supermarkets in uh, Miami. Maybe I, I give you a call because I'm like, oh no, I remember this gal. This is what she does. She's really, really good at it. She's the best. So that's the first one. But the second thing is narrow cast. So we live in a world of technology, and the te technology tells us that we can reach uh, lots of people using machines. Um, the computers can cause us to touch huge numbers of people, much larger than we ever could if we had to write them you know, a, an individualized letter. But in my experience, professional services practices never include – the targets never include more than kind of 200 people or so. 
Um, I talked to the CEO of McKinsey, and he said, look, I've got like three, 400 people that are the buyer of my services, and I try and stay connected with them. Um, they're my world. And so we've been taught as a society to think in terms of broadcast terms. Um, but I think what's really helpful is to go, who are the 100 or 200 people out there in what positions, in what companies, in what sectors, in what industries, in what geographies, um, that if I worked with even 10% of them, my business would be 10 times as big. And, uh, you know, put those people's names on the board and go, I'm going to try and meet 10 of those people every quarter and build my network of the 200 people that I'm in business to serve. So I think narrow cast, that would be, that would be something. And I think the last thing is to, to lead with value. We're also, as experts, we like to talk and, uh, we like people to listen to us. And so the temptation is to do all the talking. And, uh, what's even better is to connect people with each other and take credit for it. Let other people do the questions and the answers. Um, it, uh, people don't like being pitched. Um, but they like receiving something of value and they remember that and they appreciate that. And that earns you the right later to describe your experience and how you might be helpful to that particular executive. So lead with value. Position yourself. Be specific. Narrow cast. Zero in on the small group of people that are your target customers. And lead with value. Is that right? Right. Correct. Tom, thank you for joining us from Bozeman, Montana. Alana, it's been a great pleasure. Thank you so much for having me on the, on the show. And to our audience, you have been listening to Tom McMakin, who is co-author of How Clients Buy, a practical guide to business development for consulting and professional services, who discussed How Clients Buy Professional Services. Please share your suggestions, questions, and ideas by leaving a comment on the HispanicMPR.com website. If you or someone you know would like to be on the show, you can email me directly at editor at HispanicMPR.com. That's editor at HispanicMPR.com.